0: Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations, the power. The sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors.
1: I suppose some people might wonder um, what's so special about the Berlins. Uh, then, on the face of it, this was a fairly quiet and relatively unknown provincial family who, over a period of basically a decade, rose to some of the highest offices and certainly the highest sort of public uh, awareness in not just the whole of England, but more widespread into into Europe itself, because various ambassadors, of course, commented um, with uh, a number of different degrees of of, uh, censure on uh, the rise of the Boleyns and particularly of Anne Boleyn. I think what's of interest about this particular show is that it's not just Anne Boleyn. It it also looks at her father, Thomas, um, who's been quite a reviled figure. Um, Her brother, George, um, who of course was implicated in in her fall and, and executed uh, well, not literally at the same time, but a few days before her. Uh, and also at her elder sister, Mary, uh, who who survived all of this. Not by a lot, but she did. Um, and uh, takes a view on, the programme does, on, on their journey to uh, fame, which became, of course, a, a nightmare mm-hmm. uh, and disintegrated very, very quickly. So I thought I'd say a little bit, a bit about who they were and where they came from. Um, uh, The the Boleyns uh, were not nobodies. Uh, I mean, I was amused by the fact that people occasionally say, well, Anne Boleyn was a nobody. Um, uh, And I suppose perhaps in comparison with someone like Catherine of Aragon, uh, she certainly didn't have an immediate royal pedigree, but she counted a Duke and an Earl amongst her great grandparents, uh, and her father's family were connected to the butlers who were one of the most prominent of the Anglo-Irish families and had been resident in in Ireland for many centuries. Uh, Ireland um, was characterised as was England at the time, and certainly Scotland, by various family feuds. Uh, And certainly the the Desmonds and the Butlers, these are great names in Ireland, did not get on. Um, but that doesn't mean that Ireland was somehow a, a backward, savage place, you know, f- full of people always at one another's throats and with a, a a peasantry who could more or less be relied upon to stab you in the back and who spent all their time eating potatoes, which they certainly wouldn't have in those days anyhow, because, of course, the potato came from the New World and the exploration haven't gone that far yet. Um, but, but there is this general feeling, and I think... Some English historians have been sadly guilty of perpetuating this, much to the annoyance of some of my Northern Irish historian colleagues uh, of the fact that thinking that and depicting Ireland is some sort of uh, violent backwater full of, of um, savages, both at the aristocratic level and at the peasant level. Uh, and in fact... And the the family of Thomas Boleyn um, that was descended uh, from the butlers, the Earls of Ormond, uh, had a pedigree that, that went back and um, probably much longer than that of the Tudors, at, at least in terms of um, their position in society. And while they're homing in County Tipperary obviously wasn't like Hampton Court. There were palaces in Ireland that were absolutely magnificent and had been for many, many centuries. So let's dispel the view that this is some sort of nasty outpost. Um, I think it still speaks to the condescension in which the English hold other parts of the British Isles that these views are still being perpetuated. So Anne Boleyn was not a nobody and neither was her. Uh, her father. He came from uh, solid um, Irish aristocratic stock on, on one side of his family. Uh, and his, the other side of his family had also been um, successful merchants and politicians with, within um, the city of London. So there was um, some money and quite a lot of breeding in, in this family. And certainly they were not nobodies. And of course, Anne's uncle, the, the Boleyn children's uncle, was the, the Duke of Norfolk. Um, he was the brother of Elizabeth Boleyn, the wife of Thomas. So that's a bit about who they were and where they came from. Uh, and I I hope that dispels some myths about Anne Boleyn and her background. Her father was connected to one of the great anglo Irish families, and uh, as Eric Ives says in his book, she was born a great lady. Not a princess, obviously. Thanks to Disney, we have an absolute obsession with princesses. She wasn't from that kind of background, but then hardly anybody was. Um, So uh, she comes from a a prominent family and one that by the early 16th century was perhaps beginning to become more noticed. Her father, Thomas, was a diplomat, a man of very considerable experience on the European continent and with the the linguistic and, if you like, courtly skills that went with it. Because to be a successful diplomat, you didn't just negotiate treaties. You had to. smooch if you like with the um great and the good who ultimately you wanted to to get on your side and and he certainly knew how to do that in the some of the previous fictional depictions of of Thomas Boleyn especially in the Tudors he comes across as, as a man of of almost unseemly ambition who essentially wanted to pimp his two daughters in order to uh push himself up to the top. But there is absolutely no justification for this view. And one of the great things that that the historian Lauren MacKay did in her book about Thomas and George Boleyn was to show them much more as uh, people who were part of a dangerous and um, backstabbing, in some cases almost literally, though not in their case, court, where, uh, you know, their their, their behaviour, Thomas's behaviour in wanting to get a good education uh, for his daughters. We don't really know anything about Mary's education. Uh, and all we know about Anne's is, of course, that she was um, sent abroad to the court of uh, Margaret of Burgundy in what is now um, Belgium, um, in the age of about 12 or 13, to... Uh, be, um, I suppose we would say in modern parlance, finished You know, as, a, as a, a young lady to learn the skills of courtly behaviour, what ladies were expected to be able to do, um, all of the attributes of, of singing, dancing, um, improving their literacy, improving their grasp of foreign languages. Uh, and of course, they did do things like embroidery, and, uh, but um, the thought of all these women constantly sewing shirts and embroidering tapestries is, is, is a bit wide of the mark. Uh, and of course, they were also trained in skills like acting in, in masks uh, and the the kind of um, expectations of being on public display that that went with that kind of background. So uh, Thomas Boleyn's idea of sending his his daughter abroad um, and Anne we don't know this for short because as, as you'll know Deb there is confusion and and not complete certainty about um, even the order whether Mary was older than Anne though I think most people accept now that she was but certainly you know Anne's education uh, in sending her to to Europe was, not unheard of, but was certainly fairly unusual and would have given Anne a great deal of well it would have differentiated her from other ladies, as it did it did when, when she subsequently returned. So the, the depictions of Thomas as this this sort of sleazy man hoping that his daughters
0: can get into bed very quickly with kings is is extremely wide of the mark. I'm so glad you brought that up. It just seems with them being educated in Europe, that isn't mentioned enough to me. They were very stylish, they were very well educated, they knew how to dress. Like you said, they knew how to dance. And I um thanks for mentioning that, Linda.
1: Oh, I, I think it is it, it's one of the things that makes them interesting. It may also have indirectly introduced Anne herself probably not Mary, because there's no real no real indication that Mary was interested in um, new religious ideas. But it certainly would have introduced Anne to to some of the uh, sort of late humanist ideas, which later transposed into into actual you know Protestantism. Um, Those were in the 1520s in greater circulation in mainland Europe than than they were in um, England, um, though that would change shortly. But uh, it's not just a different courtly environment, it's probably a slightly different intellectual environment as well, um, which must have been quite uh, stimulating for for an intelligent girl. And whatever one thinks of Anne Boleyn, she obviously was um, very intelligent. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do now, Deb, is, is fast forward a bit to when Anne returns and these accomplishments are, are brought on display. Mary Boleyn had uh, originally, as far as we can tell, gone across to France to join Princess Mary Tudor, Henry's younger sister, when she was briefly married to Louis Twelfth of France. Uh, And how long Mary stayed there isn't very clear, but certainly she was back by the early 1520s with Anne following not long behind. And of course, the sequence of events is that that Mary became Henry VIII's mistress well before uh, he seems to have entertained the idea of having an affair, let alone marrying um, Anne Boleyn. Uh, And... uh, uh, Eventually, this, this affair founded. I mean, some people think that her children, at least her elder daughter, were Henry's. I don't think most most historians believe that now, that there's really no indication that they were. And as has been pointed out, Henry VIII was actually quite ready to acknowledge illegitimate children. He He <coughs> had already acknowledged his son. Uh, So uh, there's no reason to suppose that he wouldn't have necessarily acknowledged others and made some sort of provision for them, at least in financial terms. Uh, But if you start again, Anne was back in England by about 1522. And it was obviously either a slow burn or several years before Henry even noticed her. She took part in... um, uh, at court she was one of Catherine of ladies uh, and she took part in masks and displays and celebrations and things of that sort uh, along with her sister uh, and also incidentally with um, Jane who would become the the wife of her, her brother George so this was a it's quite a small refined group uh, that Anne started to, to move in. Mary of course Detached herself from it, whether because she wanted to or because the king grew tired of her, her, we don't really know. And much to the um, disapproval later on uh, of her family, married apparently for love and probably also for the security that that actually having a husband, even one of a perhaps slightly lower station than her, gave. So, uh, really, the the fifteen, the mid fifteen twenties, Anne began to become well known, Henry's eye seems to have fallen on her. I If you turn now to the divorce uh, from Catherine of Aragon, which really begins to start moving in 1527 and isn't finalised until 1533 when Henry grew tired of waiting for the Pope and had Archbishop of Cranmer declare him uh, divorced from, from Catherine of Aragon. People, I think, often assume that Anne must be have been the, the sole cause of this rift in the royal marriage. Um, but my view uh, is that she was the occasion of it rather than the cause. Uh, I mean, by 1526, Henry knew that Catherine of Aragon was not going to ever conceive again. And she'd had huge amounts of trouble, poor woman conceiving successfully and uh, many stillbirths and children dying early in, in um in infancy, So uh, that was extremely unlikely. Anne Boleyn happened to be the person who attracted his attention at the time, but I think if it hadn't been her, it would have been someone else. Uh, Henry was not the sort of man who really could contemplate the idea of his only legitimate child, Mary, uh, actually becoming uh, monarch in her own right after him. Uh, he, like most men of his times, didn't think that, that um, women were really fit to hold a high political office I mean, you can see this nowhere more clearly than in the way he treated his sister Margaret in in Scotland and completely passed up an opportunity um, essentially to have governed the whole uh, of the British Isles with Margaret's assistance and uh, instead he preferred to take another course there which was eventually to cost poor Margaret dearly but um, Back down in in London uh, in the late 1520s, Henry made the decision. Uh, It suddenly occurred to his extremely flexible conscience that, good grief, perhaps he hadn't been blessed with sons and heirs because he'd married his brother's widow and um, someone, I don't know really whether it was Henry or not, found an obscure part of of Leviticus which um, claimed that this was absolutely the wrong thing to do and you would be subject to God's judgment. And of course, this was highly convenient for Henry as an excuse to to get rid of his wife. And to um, his horror, um, to poor Catherine's much more immense horror, Henry decided they'd never been lawfully married and that this situation must urgently be addressed. Meanwhile, waiting in the wings, of course, he has a lady in Anne Boleyn who refused to become his mistress. Again, no one quite understands why that is. It wasn't that disreputable a thing in those days. I mean, it was almost an official role in France. Uh, Perhaps she saw how her sister had fared, or not fared well in a similar situation, and didn't want to go down that road herself. Which brings us, I think, to an interesting question, which is, (laughs) did Henry and Anne actually love one another? Uh, and, And opinions on this Vary and have begun to vary, I think, a bit more in, in recent years. And in the past, it was assumed, largely if you look at Henry's letters to Anne, those that survive that are in the Vatican Library. He does seem to have been obsessed, but as we all know, obsession is not the same thing really as true love. Uh, and for uh, well, six years Anne held out against um parting with her virginity. Uh, in order to become his mistress, no matter what blandishments came her way, which suggests perhaps that Henry had decided, obviously had to get rid of Catherine of Aragon, but that he might have looked for a European princess uh, to replace her in order to uh, maximise his presence and and, uh, prospects on, on the continent of Europe. Uh, and he didn't do so, um, partly because Anne Boleyn was refusing to uh, become his mistress. And of course it, it did give her family an extraordinary opportunity to bolster and improve their power. And and in the show you'll you'll see this happening, how, how it how it actually develops. But, some writers more recently have also taken the view that Anne never really loved Henry VIII; that she was probably afraid of him, uh, which would have been a, a quite reasonable response, I think, on her part, uh, and and that she she was certainly uh, absolutely dead set against being his mistress, and that she may have been a more reluctant wife than than it is sometimes thought. How much she was propelled into this eventual marriage by Henry's absolute insistence and the prospect of advancement for her family, I, I don't think we'll ever know. But I, I I think it's interesting for people to to just be open to the fact that this may not have been that sort of huge lovey-dovey arrangement that it's often portrayed as on screen and in, in historical fiction. Though I have to say that recently in Alison Weir's um, Six Wives, Fiction, historical fiction series she also takes the view that that Anne was not necessarily by any means at least initially keen to marry Henry VIII um, but, but simply couldn't really get away from him so I, I think we've covered in that the, the uh, reason that she may have held out so long for marriage rather than the more obvious role of mistress and they may be slightly deeper and even darker than, than people assume. Obviously, becoming queen was something that would be tremendously attractive, uh, but she had seen how her sister had been treated, and she'd also seen how Henry treated his first wife, of course. And, and it didn't take a genius to, to wonder what might happen if your own marriage went wrong.
0: The Boleyns, a scandalous family, an epic tale of hubris and ambition. They're all here, Thomas Bolin and his three children, Mary, Anne, and George. Elizabeth I also makes an appearance. The show premieres on PBS on Sundays August 28, September 4, and September 11th, also available on the PBS video app. Special thanks go to Georgia Public Broadcasting for their support of All Things Tudor.
1: And that brings me, I think, to my next point, what did go wrong in the marriage of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII. Uh, And it's often said, oh, well, you know, after Elizabeth was born, um, she was a great disappointment as a girl and suffered a couple of um, uh, miscarriages, apparently, subsequently, for reasons that we, we don't fully understand. I mean, some people say this had more to do with Henry VIII uh, and his health and it, it might have done, though there has been the view expressed in the past that she had a blood group, which made it quite likely that she would miscarry, not in the early months of pregnancy, but sort of in the mid-trimester, which, which she does seem to have done. Now, obviously, the, the lack of an heir Uh, And the fact that Anne was not a young woman, of course, at this time. Uh, She was 33 when she married Henry VIII, probably, depending on what you take as her her date of birth. And uh, it's often said of his last wife, Catherine Pine, how old she was when she married Henry. But actually, she was a few months younger than Anne Boleyn was when Anne married Henry. So again, Anne's fertility, probably by that time, might have been beginning to wane, her her best years really have been when she would have been in her late teens or early twenties. By the time she's in her mid thirties, her her prospects are, are not so good. But I don't think it's just the the lack of an heir and the failed pregnancies and you know the the famous story that she. We uh, were so horrified by the jousting accident that Henry had at the beginning of fifteen thirty six that this this caused her to to miscarry. I mean, no doubt she was distressed by this, but uh, quite what the connection between the two events is, I'm, I'm not sure we'll, we'll ever know. Uh, but there are there began to be indications before fifteen thirty six that the couple just didn't get on very well. Uh, it, it may be one of those situations in which you've waited so long to be married that, that uh, actually finding yourself in the situation, and, and Anne was a strong-willed, um, not to say imperious woman, um, with strong opinions. Um, th- this, is, this long, long courtship, if you like, is not necessarily the best uh, ways of, of, of entering a marriage um, and certainly Anne was not backward in speaking her mind um, she didn't make friends very easily though her her ladies some of them um, probably uh, enjoyed her company and by 1536 it's pretty obvious that there were considerable strains in, in the relationship of, of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn uh, the... Um, Historian Jack Scarrisbrick, who wrote about Henry VIII some years ago, said quite in forthright fashion, by 1536, he hated her. I mean, Henry hated Anne. Uh, And while this may seem completely over-the-top judgment, it might go some way to explain the precipitate manner of of Anne's downfall. So uh, there were strains, obviously, in the marriage, the the lack of a son and heir, uh, the fact that this was a, a difficult woman to live with from, from what, one could, what one can gather. And of course, Henry VIII was not the most easy of persons to get on with either. He didn't really like those who disagreed with him who cro- or crossed him. He appears at one level to have liked um, characterful, strong-willed women, but only for a short while and in his mind. And he had a tendency to grow... Tired of his wives within three years of his marriage, and that happened to Catherine Parr later on. It certainly seems to have happened to, to Anne Boleyn. But by that time, of course, both her father and brother had been promoted to, to great office, to the irritation, obviously, of other courtiers. Uh, I mean, Lauren described it in her book as the wolves of court, and they were like that. It, it, it was like the court was a dangerous maelstrom of, of resentment and hatreds throughout the Tudor period and actually, of course, well on into to the next couple of centuries. It didn't suddenly become a nice place to live after the end of the Tudor period. Um, but these were men who would do anything for advancement. Um, I, I think it is described Thomas Boleyn as a chancellor would be inaccurate because he'd had a very long diplomatic career before his daughter came to um, Henry VIII's attention. He wasn't a young man. Um, And he'd done quite well out of his diplomatic career without ever being in the sort of upper echelons. On the the missions that he was sent on, he was quite often not the lead, but he was viewed as, as highly dependable. Uh, and particularly able to, to um, charm people like um, Charles V's regent in the Netherlands, Margaret of Savoy, who, who seems to have got on with him very well. But of course, in the end, a diplomat is only as good as the word of his master. Uh, and if Henry VIII didn't like the road you were going down, then your efforts would would, would all come to naught. And certainly by 1536, having been promoted and given titles and the Earl of Wiltshire and lands, and George Boleyn also having been made a Viscount uh, and again given a number of high offices and and married to Jane, uh, his his wife, and again there is a lot that is complete falsehood about that marriage and we we don't know very much about it or what Jane thought of Anne Boleyn uh, in, in reality. Uh, she does seem to be being eventually a lady with not very good judgment, but that was by the time you got to Catherine Howard. But I think one of the things the show will also demonstrate to people is the extraordinary manner of Anne's downfall. Whether there had been tensions in the marriage before, whether her inability to have children or to have male heirs was 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 the final straw. Part of this pales into a, a, a sort of the distance. Uh, the 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 view that is still held, and certainly the one that I held, and seems to be there in the historical record, though you have to bear in mind that people said things for effect and didn't always understand. But, of course, Eustace Chapuis, the um, imperial ambassador who served Charles V, Chapuis wasn't in, uh, he was from Savoy, um, which is now part of France, but was then a sort of independent state, part of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, He said that Thomas Cromwell had told him shortly before Easter 1536, that he had been given the go-ahead, if you like, by Henry VIII to plan Anne's downfall. Uh, And people, I think, have tried to exonerate Henry from all of this and cast all the blame on Cromwell, who no doubt did see himself threatened by Anne's advancement. He had at one stage been in her favour, but he'd seen her, how she had got rid of Woolsey who was his master and whom he greatly admired at the time Uh, and I think he probably saw this coming himself. Uh, They disagreed not so much on on sort of religious ideas but on the way certain aspects and particularly where monies might be concerned in in, um, beginning to to dissolve some of the uh, religious houses though that didn't take place for several years after Anne's death but these ideas began to be played around with in, in the early 1530s. He, he, undoubtedly, uh, Cromwell must have felt threatened. And he, he also clearly knew his master, Henry VIII, well enough to believe that the time had come to dispense with Anne Boleyn, that there wasn't room for the two of them, Cromwell and Anne, at the sort of height of Tudor politics, and that the only way to solve this problem was to be rid of her. Uh, And so that's actually well known what happened over the Easter uh, holidays. Well, it began over the Easter holidays and didn't actually begin until the May jousts um, at at the beginning of the month of May. It it obviously was a few weeks in the planning. And as a coup d'etat, which in many respects it was, it it was brilliantly conceived and carried out. Uh, One of the things that always bothers me, Deb, these days about how, A lot of young women have become entranced by Anne Boleyn, whom they see, you know, as this strong figure, this successful woman, this this 16th century lady who was empowered. Uh, If you look at the manner of Anne Boleyn's fall, you can see just how empowered she actually was, uh, which is not at all, because she could do nothing to save herself. She seems not to have seen this coming. In which case, she had misjudged both her husband and his uh, one of his leading ministers at the time. Uh, she'd also misjudged her family, in that it would eventually be the Duke of Norfolk who would preside over her trial. And I think the the accusations which were made against her, which nobody believes nowadays, I mean, there has been the, the suggestion by George Bernard that perhaps she had if not committed adultery, at least behaved rather unwisely with some uh, of the men who surrounded her. But I mean, those who were accused with her, these were political scores that were being settled, most notably in Sir William Brereton, who really had very little to do with Anne Boleyn, poor man, and it cost him his head in, in, in the end. Uh, but there is something ineluctably nasty about the way this was all carried out. I mean, not just that Anne was accused of adultery with half a dozen men, but that one of them was her own brother. Uh, This is not the action of a husband who really has any respect or the slightest tinge of affection left for his wife. And it shows how incredibly exposed a woman, a queen consort like Anne Boleyn was, that they had no comeback, no defence I mean she did make a, a, a well judged and 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 quite uh reasonable defence of herself and and George Boleyn certainly did uh, and he, he perhaps a little more than Anne was not quite as surprised I think that by by how this actually happened uh he seems to have been resigned to his fate but there's a, some sort of inkling that he, he 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 was less less amazed and and I mean, he was caught out by it because there was nothing he could do, but that it might have been something that had entered into the frame of his consciousness at any rate, which with Anne, it it seems not to have done. She may have been guilty of rather unwise talk in her own private chambers. She probably was a flirt. Uh, It was expected of ladies of the court that they'd be flirts. They're perhaps not such a wise form of behaviour for a queen, particularly one married to Henry VIII. Uh, So, no, she wasn't guilty as accused. Nobody really believes that nowadays. It was a case of judicial murder. Uh, And it's a particularly vile and and distasteful one, I think. Uh, I mean, whatever justification one might try to give for Henry VIII, and few enough (laughs) people do now. Uh, I mean, this really, even more than what happened to Catherine Howard, I think this is something which um, turns people's stomachs, really, or if it doesn't, it should. So this uh, attractive, but not beautiful. She was obviously, I think, what we would call sexy nowadays, Anne Boleyn, Um, a lady with her French manners and her sort of quite widespread intellectual interests. Um, She may not have been as much of a Early reformer, as people think that that she was, um, but she was undoubtedly a lady of of you know the proper degree of faith for for a woman of of her times. Um, you can see that in in some of her you know beautiful prayer books and things which are at Hever Castle. So she wasn't guilty as accused, and she went to the block in May fifteen thirty six, rather soberly regretting if she had displeased the king uh, and uh, but but not, you know, making a, a huge screeching personal defence at the time. And it was reported afterwards the queen died boldly, which doesn't mean what it does and what might do nowadays, in which we would assume that she sort of stood there and said, screw you, essentially, to everyone around her. It merely means that she died in, in a sort of proper uh, fashion executed by a sword rather than the um, axe Um, uh, and uh, i mean it it was a a tragic and i think for her quite unforeseen end to a life in which she and her family had risen very high and accrued all kinds of resentment and dislike on the way and perhaps not as you'll see in the show been very subtle or sensitive in how they had responded to that Uh, and uh, It's worth remembering, I think, what happened to the remaining Berlin family after her death. Thomas and his wife, Elizabeth, died within a few years. Uh, You occasionally get people who simply have no understanding of how things functioned uh, in the Tudor court or indeed any other court in the 16th century saying, well, you know, why didn't the um, Berlin parents intervene on behalf of their daughter? Well, the answer is, of course, they knew better. If you wanted to survive, you you stayed quiet. And the shame that this had brought on the family was, was really quite considerable. But surviving just into the 1540s was Mary Boleyn, um, who had lived quietly in the countryside with her her second husband uh, and produced a a small family. And eventually, if you want to think of it this way, had the last laugh because it is her descendants now, as Leander Delisle points out at the end of the, the show, that sit on the throne of England uh, via Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, who, who was a, a descendant of the descendants of Mary Boleyn. Uh, so, you know, Anne and her unfortunate brother, you know, her young brother, whom, her younger brother whom she loved very much, who were caught up in all of this um, and paid for it with his life. Certainly, the Tudors, of course, were, as Elizabeth I is famously supposed to have said, Baron Stock, But um, certainly the the current Queen of England is is related to to Mary Boleyn. And I don't think many people know that. Uh, And I I think it it perhaps is a fitting end to what I would say, that it was the quiet Boleyn who had forged her own path, much to the displeasure of her sister and family, um, who had decided to take her own happiness in her own hands and had had quite enough of the court and its shenanigans who eventually her family have passed on down into into um, English and later British history, and I, I think hopefully that will give people some background to the Berlin's a scandalous family, and uh, uh, inspire their wider interest in in this this period uh, and this this family that is that people think they know, but perhaps they don't.
0: Well, thank you, Linda, for that wonderful analysis and. Dr. Mackay called you the fairy godmother of the Baleins, a scandalous family. <laughs> and
1: Well she's got my she's got my age right. <laughs> <laughs> she's certainly got my age right. I'm kidding no, she, no, didn't. No. she didn't she made it in a very nice way that that, I, that it should be taken. Um she um she and I were supposed to meet of uh, just a couple of weeks ago out at Hever um where she was going to be filming and um, poor Owen Emerson got COVID for the fourth time. I mean, he's now calling himself, he, he calls it his Anne of Cleves moment <laughs> because she was Henry's fourth wife, of course. Oh. Um, we're just hoping that he won't get a fifth version because we all know what happened to Catherine Howard. So. Um, but, uh, and she decided that, I mean, you know, the, the filming was cancelled and she was about to go back to Australia. And she said, anyhow, you know, she wouldn't have wanted to give me pass on to Covid to
0: me. She didn't get it in the end herself, fortunately, but. So we have yet to meet, but that was very kind. Of it phone. was very kind. So, And so are you for joining today. Thank you very much for that. And you're always welcome to come back. Your insight is top tier. And I always truly enjoy talking to you, Linda. Thanks very much, Deb. I will look forward to returning at some point in the future. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk more about the blends in upcoming episodes. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at -at TheDebATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.